0: invite you to turn in your text or in the pew bible this morning to luke chapter 24 you can find it on page 884 in that pew bible we have been carefully several weeks now for those of you again who are guests uh, we welcome you Uh, we are delighted to have you with us uh, we have been looking together at the gospel according to Luke. He has been our faithful uh, guide, this careful historian, this position to capture the person and work of Jesus. And in the course of this study, uh, we're going to now this week, hit pause, jump ahead to uh, near the close, uh, Luke chapter 24, to uh, carefully look again at The resurrection, but as you're turning there and as you hold your finger there at Luke 24, I'll remind you that Luke at the very outset uh, recorded something for us of his purpose at the opening. And Luke 1, he writes this. He says in verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. And ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We are bringing into focus this nobleman, this curious man, Theophilus. Maybe you're curious again. A new and afresh this morning, I invite you to stand again as we show deference to God's word. We'll read these opening 12 verses. Luke chapter 24. Hear this. This is the word of God. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Again, this is God's word. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Let's ask his help. Dear God, we do pray that you would uh, even now, uh, by uh, your spirit, accompany your word, that your spirit would, uh, would, would plant and water and grow faith in each of us right now. Every person here, those who are uh, gathering online, forgive us, Lord, our sins, especially me. An unworthy sinner to be up here proclaiming the profound mysteries and the beauties of the gospel in Jesus. Lord, we ask your blessing on this time in his name. Amen. I heard one preacher say it's uh, it's somewhat difficult uh, with all of these. There's not that many. These resurrection accounts each Easter Sunday to, to really say much, you know, I mean, it kind of speaks for itself. So I just thought. Then maybe I would get up here and say a couple of jokes, and then you guys can just head on to the Easter egg hunt or lunch. How about that? That's not when a preacher wants an amen. Let's just give it a try, though. Let me let me just start with a joke. Let's just imagine there's three guys. We'll call them Jim, Mike, and Carl. Jim, Mike, and Carl are all sitting around a, a campfire. It's it's one night. It's late. They're having a philosophical discussion about this and that life and the subject of death comes up well they one of them says this jim says let's imagine let me ask you guys a question imagine you're on your back laying face up in a casket what do you want people to say looking over you jim asks the group and mike looks at jim and says well why don't you start jim jim says i'll tell you what i'd like for people to say i'd like for them to say that jim was a, a, a marvelous guy he was uh, multi-talented and he was uh, n- not only influential, but he was generous and he had an impact on thousands upon thousands. What a remarkable guy. And Jim says to Mike, Mike, what about you? What would you want people to say? And Mike says, Jim, I'm not that ambitious. I just hope that they would say he was a he was a loving dad and he was a good husband. Well, they turned and looked at Carl and said, Carl, what would you want people to say? And Carl says, honestly, guys, if someone's looking over me Uh, in a casket, I hope they'll say, look, he just moved. (laughs) I know that was kind of a dad joke and a preacher joke all together. Death comes, though, to all of us. We're all impacted by death and we all will likely face death. This year in particular, we thought more about it, frankly. I've seen more people anxious and And reflecting on on death because of this pandemic. It's real. People's minds at various ages even have been focused in a natural way on death. It is natural for us at times to be fearful and anxious about death. That is natural. But what I'll tell you this morning is supernatural. Is when you encounter people who have hope even in the face of real death. Not the distant prospect, we don't know how distant it is for any of us, but in the face of real death, to have hope is not natural, it is supernatural, it's resurrection hope. That's why I'm so glad that Christianity, biblical Christianity, is a religion of big butts. That's not my second joke, young people, it's buts with a single T, B-U-T. Whenever it's recorded, right? When when we when we account of something, the the B U T but is is partly a a good news. Let me give you an example. Whenever you see that interjected, whenever you see that recorded, it changes what went before. And so let's just let's just try this out. Alright? Let's just say you were to journal your day and you said, This morning I got up and I put on my Patriots jersey. But, my mom or my wife said, it's Easter, you're not wearing that. I can see that worked out for some of you guys, okay? That's how it works. That's how the butt works. What does Luke 1 say? Verse 1 of our chapter, Luke 24. What's verse 1 say? But. But on the first day of the week at early dawn. What comes before that that is undone? Well, it's it's Jesus' death. It's recorded right there in the previous chapter. That He is crucified. That He is carried away with many witnesses into a tomb. Some of those witnesses were these women recorded here. And it was Sabbath. So they... They had to go. They had. They had to go home and then and then wait until they could go back and tend to his body on the first day of the week. Two questions, just briefly to guide our reflection this morning. You know me. I'm Captain Obvious. So here they are. Why are they at the tomb? Question. Question one. Why are they at the tomb? The second question is. Why is Jesus not in the tomb? I know that's not profound, but let's try to look at it. Why are they at the tomb? The simple answer is, if you go back into chapter 23, verse 56, that they had prepared spices and ointments for Jesus. They they prepared that. They had to wait till the end of Sabbath. They go first thing Sunday morning. And they want to prepare his body. The scent of death. The decomposition is going to be setting in. They wanted to provide these ointments and spices. They were there because they loved Jesus. They, these women were devoted to their Lord and their Master Jesus. And so they show, even though there are others who are disciples. Who because of all the persecution and violence. And the stirring around uh, Jesus and his crucifixion. They wanted to be distant. They were away. But here these women are going out into public right back to the tomb where they had uh, placed Jesus. They had rolled a gigantic stone over in front of a brand new tomb. And other gospels record that there was, of course, uh, guards placed there by it. What's the other reason that they're at the tomb? They thought that Jesus' body would be there. Plain and simple. They may be very devoted to Jesus, but they are forgetful. They knew that the guards would be there. Even when they get there, the guards aren't there, the tombs, the stones rolled away. They still aren't looking for it to be empty. And then they encounter these two men. Of course, verse 4 records that they were perplexed, they were confused. In other gospel accounts, Mary, amongst these women, is the first to get there. And, and, and she says to whom she thinks is the gardener, where did you take his body? The two, the two men who were here, later we are told, that are they're, they're recorded in verse 4, but later we're told that they are angels. Which we're already tipped off to the fact that when they were in these dazzling apparel, the women who were there couldn't help but fall down in in fright and in reverence and awe because these were angelic holy beings What do the two messengers say Let's read it again let's look at verse 6 he, he is not here but he is risen Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered He must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise now, we, we might be uh, inclined, we get the impression that, they're, that these angels are asking this these women a question. Like in verse 5. They're not. Because if you look at the the, the if you look at the original language, uh, the tense is not, it's not interrogative. It's imperative. It's not asking a question, it's giving a command. You need to remember. You must remember that he said this would happen. And then by grace and faith, they do. That's recorded there. It's verse 8. They, they remember. And of course, they remember His words. And then verse 9, they return and they go to tell everyone. Naturally, they're, they're so stunned. And, and that's the remedy. They, they, by faith, choose to remember His words and His promises. And it is the remedy to their perplexity. They naturally go and tell uh, others when they reach the apostles... They of all people surprise us because they're still in verse eleven there in unbelief. They say it's it, it seemed to them an idle tale. Another way to translate that in the original is you just got a bunch of crazy talk. This is just this is this is crazy talk. They thought perhaps they dismissed they dismissed this this news, this good news, what would have been good news, as just some emotionally. You know, uh, flying off the handle women. Perhaps, they, perhaps another reason is that they themselves are already, uh, you know, mourning and in a state of feeling though Jesus had let them down. But for whatever it is, at this particular moment, they're stuck in unbelief. But it does raise really another question for us. Why then? Why, why does Luke record this? Why does, he, He's the one that gets to uh, recapture the narrative to try to point Theophilus and us to faith in Christ. Why would he do it this way? Why wouldn't he leave some of these details out? One of the ones that he should have left out was the fact that it was a woman's testimony. Sadly, tragically enough, in the ancient world, a woman's testi- a testimony was largely inadmissible in court. And we know... Because of people like Celsius, an early uh, Roman uh, pagan opponent to Christianity, he rejected the faith because he said he believed that the resurrection was largely based upon, quote, hysterical women. And and then, why would Luke include that these, these disciples, of all people, are sitting there doubting? Temporarily as it may be, but it doesn't look very favorable. I mean, if you're going to make up a story, why would you... Why would you jeopardize its credibility by having women as the star witness? And then you would have, why wouldn't you put these disciples into a, a little bit better light? Except that the only plausible explanation is this is how it happened. This is true. This is the actual account, the way it is. Here's my second question. Why is Jesus not at the tomb? Perhaps he's not dead. Maybe they were confused, but it was attested to by so many. And the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they they very much wanted it. And as a result, the Romans very much wanted to secure it. The women saw his body. Perhaps they had the wrong tomb. No, they went the days before. And saw exactly where it was. It was a brand new tomb. It wouldn't have been mistaken amongst any others. They knew exactly where it was. Did someone take him? Of course, that wouldn't account for the fact that that he's walking around with a glorified body. 500 plus witnesses see him. Why is Jesus not in the tomb? Simply put... But profound, nonetheless, is the fact that the mission is accomplished, that the promises have been fulfilled, that Jesus is alive. Jesus suffered not only under the experience of entering into humanity and then misunderstanding and scorn and and physical pain and then the shame of, of of, of a death by crucifixion on a cross, and that's not even the worst of it. It's also that he had to suffer under the weight of God's wrath, our sin, our punishment. As we'll close in a little while, when we say the Lord's Prayer, "Forgive us our trespasses," or, or as we've rendered it, "Our, our debts." Why do we say that? As we forgive our debtors, well, because there's some people that are indebted to us because of their words, their actions. And, uh, and a host of other things they may have done wrong to us, but the debt that we have amassed in in relationship to our holy Creator is way, way, way beyond what we understand even, and it's way beyond what we can ever pay or repay back. We need a substitute. Our debts are covered because Christ's death, His perfect life, Christ is died to pay for, atone, to cover, to cancel, as our substitute, our debt. He takes our sin, and then He gives us His righteous record before God the Father. The reason Jesus is not in the tomb is because when He hung on the cross, and at the very close, when He's breathing His last Some of the last words that he says is this. It is finished. He cries out, Father, into your hands. You can read it in the previous chapter. I commit my spirit. It is finished, meaning his work is finished. His faithfulness. And the Father's response to that is, Amen. So be it. And that is manifest in the resurrection. The resurrection is God the Father raising God the Son from the dead, as to say, Amen, it is finished to the work of his life and death. Praise be to God. So what? So what for you? So what for me? So what? At the very least, I think it might be fitting for us to go back to one of the questions, the only question the angels ask, if you look again at verse 5. If this is all true, Christ vindicated, Christ risen, Christ our Savior, Lord. Here's the question. Verse 5, the angels look at them as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And then they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? You can't find a living Savior. You can't find anyone living. This is a graveyard. What are you doing here? You are looking for life. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. True? There's a reason that story kind of rings true sometimes. They're looking for life in a graveyard. And the great British preacher Some hundred and ten years ago, probably now, Charles Spurgeon in London preached on this very line, that very question. And he wrote this. Bear with me. It's a little bit of a long quote. The mistake that they made was they were seeking for the living Savior where he could not have been found. We have us, all of us, made the same mistake. Some of us are making it now We are seeking good things in the midst of evil, hoping to find satisfaction where it will never yet be discovered and good things in the midst of evil. Hoping to find uh, and it will never be found seeking, but seeking in the wrong place, seeking for the living among the dead. Jesus is the perfect and only living hope. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is the lover of our souls. Jesus is love. He is the Prince of Peace. He is our acceptance. He is the bread of life. Eternal life. Why are you trying? Why why are we in our our foolishness, in our flesh? Why are we uh, searching amongst temporal, fading, even dead things, ultimately? What are we trying to find? Striving? Striving? Amidst your work and your career, chasing after romance or experiences, material goods, the praises, the applause of people. Or perhaps it's it's even striving to to do good, to do right, to, to amass enough religious experiences that you'll have some type of spiritual extra credit. Or maybe in your insecurities, now do every one of you have them. Me included. Or maybe in your your fear or your exhaustion, you've just given up some measure of hope and you're content to just escape through experiences or substances or distractions or, or entertainment. Back to Spurgeon, he says, our union with Christ is not subject to degrees We are always in Him accepted in the Beloved. Happy is the man who builds on that solid rock and not upon the treacherous quicksands of his own personal emotions. If you endeavor to draw comfort from your fickle, changeable feelings, you seek for the living among the dead. You are looking for joy where it can never be found. You will gather the thorn, but not the rose. You will endure the labor, but not receive the reward. You will suffer the burning fire, but not be enlivened by its cheerful, cheerful warmth. Why? Why? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? It's been a strange year. It's been a strange, whatever it is, 13 months. In so many areas. In so many ways. I, I was reminded last night in one of those areas is sports, right? I was watching the Final Four in college basketball last night, and I began to think, you know, there's a lot more people there than I would have imagined. And then I realized when the camera <laughs> at the end kind of focused in on the coach, and, you know, the team all, you know, elated with this buzzer beater with Gonzaga, that there's a bunch of cardboard people out there. It's ridiculous, it's crazy never would have imagined that college football this past season would have had empty stadiums. It was Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, that was the first to announce that they were going to have a season with virtually no one in the stands. And then the ACC and others began to kind of scramble to allow for fake noise, like like recorded noise in the stands. Why do I highlight this? Look. Every historical figure down through the ages, prominent figure, serves an opportunity to polarize people and even to bring the occasion for, 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 for misunderstanding and wide, wide speculation. And Jesus is chief amongst those. Whether you're a skeptic, whether you're this morning a devoted follower of Jesus, or whether, whether you're just altogether apathetic, you have a view of Jesus. Every one of you has a view, a perspective on Jesus. Undoubtedly. And my concern is that in some way, it corresponds to the Jesus of South Bend, Indiana. Let me explain what I mean. Many of you have never, most of you probably have never been to South Bend. Uh, one morning, a Saturday morning, I was running around the stadium. I was visiting my brother-in-law And I noticed, what can you not notice? But at the other end is Touchdown Jesus. Have you ever seen Touchdown Jesus? Some of you have seen it in the movie Rudy. Some of you have seen it when watching uh, college sports. Right on the library, there's this gigantic mural that's painted of Jesus. And his arms are up like this. And though they call him Touchdown Jesus, presumably giving you this great blessing or benediction. (laughs) over Over the Irish. And now you're really asking, why are you bringing this up, Troy? Isn't that the kind of Jesus that so often the affluent and the seemingly independent human wants? We want a Jesus who's influential, but preferably one dimensional. We we prefer a Jesus that's helpful, but not controversial. We want a Jesus who's beneficial, but not too personal. What about you? Is Jesus this morning one-dimensional? Or has he risen? Exalted in your heart and your mind. It's a a game changer. I mean, he either did or he didn't. No one's going to argue that. It's nothing in between. If you know yourself to be a sinner, someone who doesn't have any hope except for God's grace and his forgiveness, if you've had moments this past year, maybe even this morning, where you have been looking for the living among the dead, and you know it in your good conscience. I got some good news for you. I got some really, really good news for you this morning. It's another big but. B U T. That's not my second joke. It is my last point, though. So look with me at verse 12. What does it say? The apostles, they all said, that's a bunch of crazy talk. But what does it say in verse 12? But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. Why did Peter run? Why did he not just sit there In in unbelief like the rest of them. Luke records that he got up and he ran. Why? We don't exactly know precisely. But we can piece together that Peter's not feeling all that great. Peter is, is perplexed himself. Peter is looking and thinking to himself, I've just lost this dearest of friends. I didn't, I didn't envision it. I, I didn't want it to end this way. And and then to make matters worse, the last memory that I have of my friend, my Lord, my savior is that I betrayed him. And his guilt and his shame. Did Peter run to the tomb because he knew it was he knew it was empty? I knew it all along. No, he stooped down and he looked in there. Peter ran to the tomb because he knew he needed it to be empty. He needed it to be. He needed a savior. He needed someone to conquer death, hell, and the grave. There was no hope without it for him. He needed a living hope and a living Savior, and we do too. Otherwise, the death of Christ, as it is recorded, is nothing. He's not vindicated. We don't have any hope. It's recorded for us. And this doesn't mean, by the way, that we're just doomed a bunch of idiots for getting together to have a big celebration about something that didn't even happen. The tragedy is that if Jesus didn't die, well, it's recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul says that he's the first fruits among the dead. Christ has been raised. We will be raised. But if that's not true, this is what it's recorded saying. If Jesus has not been raised, well, then your faith is futile. And to make matters worse, you, he records, are still in your sins. Well, we don't have that. We have a living Savior. We are not still in our sins. We, have, we are hidden in Christ if we come to Him. We have union with Christ. Come to Jesus this morning. The real living Savior. Repent of looking for, for life among the dead. Come to the living hope, the living Savior by faith. Father, we only know in part the precious freedom and benefits of, even now in the face of our failures because of the glorious triumph of Christ and His resurrection. We know that right now we only see in a mirror dimly, but we look forward to the day of Christ's return when we shall see Him face to face, when our union with Him will mean all the more. But Lord, as we wait for that day, I'm so grateful that we don't have to wait without hope but it's a struggle, and you know it. And you are a God of compassion and and mercy. And we pray that right now you would you would shower that on those who face great fear of death and have no hope, that a struggle with anxiety and, and isolation. People who are in harm's way and who are responders and, and people in medicine. Lord, for those who are in leadership. In government and in places like education who have... Loads of responsibility, Lord, meet them, please. Shower mercy, Lord, on those who are grieving and mourning the loss of loved ones this past year. Those who face, God, I pray, I I pray that you would meet those who are facing chronic illnesses and great pain. And they're suffering either emotionally or physically. Lord, please meet them with your tender mercy. Would you even glorify yourself, we pray, to extend relief in your healing touch. But in the meantime, Lord, would you teach us to hate sin and to love Jesus because we ask in his name, the risen Savior, even now as we pray together, as he taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven,